But you see, the one thing we don't have now, as I pointed out before, is this involvement of women. We don't have women in the trade networks of the world, and we have very few uh, women religious of a stature that uh, we can really draw on as the spiritual resources of the planet. I mean, they're there, but they're not in a position where they are audible and visible. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. I'm trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science itself has become a problem. Now we have bigger problems. We are conserving literally. Is it possible to care for each other more? What must be done how we care for the earth? Yeah. Now we see all the literally for our survival on the planet. We have to learn no learning outcropping off the northeastern coast of England the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious philosophic and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together both scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Elise Boulding, author of The Underside of History, provides a historical perspective on women in community and gives her appraisal of the future success of new communities. One thing Bill evidently um, doesn't know about me, he said, I know where you are, but um, he doesn't know that I'm living as a hermit this year. And uh, it's a little ironical for me to be given the assignment of talking about community, uh, because this is my year of solitude. I'm on leave from the university, and I'm living in a hermitage in the mountains, and um, I'm living in uh, total aloneness, all oneness, as Brother David called it yesterday, and um, total silence, uh, but I do see my family once a week. And uh, in some ways, I have very different perceptions of community now as a result of that experience of solitude. Uh, I also have... Um, some difficulty in stepping into situations. I've just been in two weeks of intensive exposure to conferences, and I'm going to do my best to uh, step back from that and um, share as if I were um, still at my hermitage. If you live in silence, uh, you all know, those of you who get up very early in the morning, before people get up, that there are lots of sounds in silence. The sounds which aren't human-generated uh, give you um, a very different feeling for reality than sounds that are humanly generated. The, the companionship that comes out of solitude is very different from the kind of companionship that comes out of human relatedness. For each person who lives in solitude, that companionship will take on the characteristics of what that person can receive, but um, I suppose one way I would describe it would be as a kind of a God-saturatedness. And so perhaps the theme which I understand has been a continual um, dialectic uh, during the conference of uh, contemplation versus activism um, is uh, very relevant for, for me to speak to.
I have found by that um, uh, withdrawal uh, a sense of connectedness uh, with the planetary society that I never had before. Um, a, um, a commitment to action uh, in a different sense, perhaps, than I understood action before. And uh, a, a kind of a resolution, all we do ever is arrive at temporary resolutions until we come up to the next point where we have to do it all over again. But a kind of a, uh, of a, a resolution of um, the need for attention to inner space and the attention to outward, the needs of society. In a way, uh, this isn't something that just happened recently. Uh, since uh, many speakers have indicated something of where they are coming from, I might just say, without going into a big autobiography, uh, that um, uh, my earliest childhood memories certainly are of uh, this moving back and forth between um, uh, experiencing God's presence and uh, doing things like as a child going and visiting old people's homes at Christmas and Easter and, and then as I got into the teen years doing surveys of housing in the uh, uh, slum areas of the town uh, I lived in and then gradually then I moved into the uh, uh, householder's role and the whole range of community activism, always weaving back and forth between times of, of prayer and uh, profound experiences of God's presence and a sense always that this had to be translated. The process of translation, uh, uh, as I'm sure for all of you, has been uh, this uh, continual theme. Uh, that means um, uh, that uh, the peaks and the troughs, which Brother David spoke of so illuminatingly yesterday, uh, was uh, a part of that pattern of life. Uh, but in one of those periods that come to all of us, and which came to me uh, when I was 51, um, you might say I got ripped apart from head to foot. Uh, and all of the kinds of syntheses and integrations and weaving in and out of the, uh, of the prayer life and the activist life um, uh, were not working anymore. Uh, perhaps part of the problem was that I lost a sense of boundary between myself and society, and so every problem was my problem. Uh, every problem uh, demanded my attention. And um, uh, there was no point at which uh, to say, yes, this, no, not that. Uh, and uh, so uh, this uh, total um, uh, involvement uh, gradually became clear. I had a total lack of discernment. Saul spoke yesterday about the problem of choice. You know, when do you do what, given the goodies and the baddies. And uh, I suppose uh, this lack of boundaries, the need to um, uh, rediscover discernment, uh, led to the, uh, set the stage for a year of withdrawal, and um, has indeed uh, placed me now in the uh, for the time being, I know all resolutions are provisional in this life, but for the time being, uh, I feel that uh, uh, I, I have a new perception of the importance of discernment and of time spent in the act of discernment. Uh, before moving directly to a discussion of uh, communities in uh, relation to this, um, I'd like to say something about the relation of psychic phenomena uh, as I perceive it to uh, the problems of um, 
social change uh, and to religious development because I think we had uh, yesterday a very moving uh, account of this uh, realm of human experience uh, and uh, the relevance of it for community life, which I, I was not able to stay through that discussion because I'd, my own uh, my hermit life uh, ill fits me for too much exposure to people. But I learned that that was the question that you asked, what is its relevance? And um, uh, I think that um, the value of um, the psychic realm in religious experience uh, is certainly uh, everything that has been uh, uh, was said for it last night in uh, uh, increasing one's capacity to deal with the environment and understand that uh, you get a much more multi-dimensional understanding. Um, but um, there is um, a problem of um, uh, misplaced, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness perhaps, uh, in undue attention, that is not seeing what the limitations uh, of the, uh, the psychic uh, realm are. Um, I think that actually Dave uh, gave a beautiful and um, a delightfully humorous uh, presentation of these um, limitations, uh, the, the kind of success stories about the 40-pound cabbages and so on, uh, uh, and uh, the money that turns up when you've started a building, it reminded me very much of the, um, uh, uh, the, the evangelical fundamentalist environments I was in as a child, where um, in, in, um, in Ocean Grove, any of you who know the Ocean Grove community, uh, men and women would stand up and testify to these miraculous uh, things that had happened through prayer to their businesses. And then we lived in Iowa and the fundamentalist Quakers, there are fundamentalist Quakers in Iowa, would tell about how when they started tithing, their hens doubled the number of eggs <laughs> that they laid and so on. And, and these are, uh, that is, we smile at them, but they also have some kind of validity. There, there is another, there is an expansion of awareness that goes through this, and it should not be denied. Uh, and the kind of teaching that our environment does for us, the, uh, the plants teaching uh, the people in the Findhorn community, uh, that's my daily uh, experience uh, uh, in my own hermitage, uh, sitting once under a, uh, a tree uh, in Austria at the site of an ancient uh, Druid uh, altar. Uh, and suddenly being put back, I suspect, from my knowledge of the history of the area that I read later, about 2,500 years, and hearing the assemblage of, of the people, you know, all these things. Uh, you can smile at them, and yet when you have been touched by them, uh, they affect how you respond to life. Uh, so uh, I'm uh, personally uh, grateful that these things were, were brought uh, in here. They are precious, and we... Uh, for those who have uh, cut themselves off from them, uh, it's, uh, it is certainly time that we introduce this as a part of human formation. Uh, but uh, the limitations of the uh, psychic phenomena are that they do not deal with the problem of discernment. And that is still the need to discern, the need to analyze, the need to uh, um, make judgments. Uh, uh, and uh, find applications remains. And um, this um, uh, is in relation to the problems of community, uh, to teaching discernment and developing discernment in uh, communities, I think is one of the most um, uh, challenging uh, tasks uh, that face us. And uh, particularly, I must say, in an area that I have special concern with, um, uh, as uh, a mother of five children and uh, as a uh, teacher and a person who, as soon as our oldest got into college, I did everything I could to find ways to spend with toddlers again because I felt I was losing a balance of uh, things that I had always been taught by my children. I had to go find other children uh, to keep teaching me. Uh, religious communities or communities with some uh, religious orientation have not always done well with children. And in fact, we have in our own time, I have observed many 
um, children in the years since my own adulthood, who uh, adults of my own age and younger, who have been products of the previous generation of communities who have been damaged in various ways. Um, I see the problem of human formation as much more complex than most uh, communitarians talk about it. Uh, and the teacher in the classroom who is experimental and open-minded simplifies in one way. The person in the community who is experimental and open-minded simplifies in another way. The product, the child, as you watch that child growing up, and maybe you have to be 54 to have seen enough of children growing up and what they're able to do as adults to realize the depth of that problem, how difficult it is to help human beings become whole and, uh, and function uh, as whole persons uh, through, um, through an adult life. Uh, so uh, I'll discuss the uh, communities in um, uh, not just uh, the Lindisfarne type, but try to put that in the context of all the different kinds of communities we have uh, in terms of these two things, the, the human formation, the creation of a new kind of a human product, uh, and as a creation of working models for the future of the sociosphere, because I think those are the twin concerns that most um, uh, communities address themselves to. Uh, but I um, want to say that I do not share the general optimism about this being a great time for the creation of the new planetary community. Uh, I did share that optimism up until about a year ago, and uh, I've started becoming more and more aware of what I consider the special handicaps we have in the 20th century uh, in uh, terms of facing uh, that, um, uh, that creation, standing at threshold. We certainly are standing at threshold. If we speak in terms of axial periods in human history, this is a threshold. Nobody's going to deny that. But we have certain handicaps that perhaps they didn't have in the 1200s. Um, and um, one of them is the thinness of the mankind concept. Uh, it's thin for a variety of reasons. Uh, one it was already dealt with at the very beginning. I think that both Saul and uh, Dick uh, Falk probably spoke about the fact that they're aware that we are a very privileged majority, uh, privileged minority <laughs> here, um, <clears throat> a majority in our use of the world's resources and all that. Uh, so that the, uh, the kinds of, uh, in 1900, when people were talking about uh, planetary community, and that, you know, that theme really from 1850 to 1900 was the first statement, the first modern statement of that. Uh, then uh, people had no conception of um, uh, the, uh, the black, uh, you know, third world and so on. All that has now entered consciousness. So when we now say uh, mankind, we at least know that it comes in different colors and that it speaks different languages, which people didn't know in 1900. I mean, they didn't know it in that sense of knowing it with their full, conscious, attentive mind, uh, although in some rational corner they obviously knew that people were of different kinds. Uh, but uh, what we still do not know uh, in that sense um, relates very much to the use of the word man and mankind. And uh, uh, the uh, language which has been used here this week, uh, planetary man, the future of man, man and mankind um, have to do with a, a kind of a crippling of our capacity to conceptualize the nature of the human being and the human condition because of our linguistic uh, practices, the generic use of the word man. It simply cripples our minds. And this is not, I'm not simply making a political statement, although it has definitely political implications, <laughs> but I'm not simply making a political statement. I'm, I'm trying, uh, as a, uh, in the uh, Sociological Association, we have spent a lot of time trying to teach our male colleagues to understand what the use of the word man in sociology has done to uh, distort sociology. And I'm saying that exactly that kind of thing happens in, among futurists and among people particularly who are concerned with um, spiritual uh, dimensions in development, 
that is the worst place for this to remain so firmly entrenched. And this is where it is very firmly entrenched. So I invite you to uh, remove the word man and mankind from your vocabulary and um, uh, to um, uh, struggle with the pain, and it is painful, uh, and ugliness of alternatives. I mean, they sound ugly to us, uh, and new words in time will come. And maybe someday we can use man and it won't matter, but not in this century, friends. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, you know, human, the human being, the human person, humankind, the personhood, the individual, and so on, they are often clumsy, and for anyone who writes a lot, it's painful uh, to, uh, uh, to have to deal with all these alternatives, but it has to be done. But there's another uh, approach that helps us uncripple our minds, and that has to do with thinking in terms of the sisterhood of humankind and just using the word sisterhood for a while instead of brotherhood. Um, to um, to um, uh, meditate on the motherhood of God and uh, set that alongside of fatherhood. Uh, the church has been severely crippled for 2,000 years, the Christian church, by the entire... Uh, male concepts of divinity. I mean, this is really serious for the human kids. That's why I say we arrive crippled at the point of creating the new person, the new era, the new uh, stage in social evolution. We just may not be the ones to do it because we have all these fatherhood and brotherhood concepts. Uh, so um, uh, the motherhood of God, the sisterhood of humankind, and if Brother David will forgive me, Meditate on the nun in you, all of you. Meditate on the nun in you. I could say a lot more about that, but I won't. You can each elaborate. <laughs> and I don't simply mean uh, a Jungian analysis, although that's very relevant. It's very relevant, but it, goes, uh, it has other implications and other dimensions. So here we are, anyhow, in the 20th century, and um, um, I'd like to point out that uh, uh, we have perhaps uh, been better equipped in the past for uh, this kind of community formation. If you, uh, very briefly, without getting too involved in history, uh, if you take the period from roughly 50,000 to 2000 BC, the first communities were, in fact, literally sisterhoods. That is a Sibylline. Uh, communities and so on, the sibling priestesshoods, <laughs> uh, so that all of the earliest experience of community formation, that is outside of families, uh, were, were women. It, this is in the agricultural era. Now, um, all community formation has to do, uh, among other things, with problems of scale. That is, we know that the population of the planet has been steadily increasing uh, for a long time, so uh, periodically we arrive at new densities. I mean, you, uh, wh where you say a critical breakpoint uh, depends on how you want to uh, cut up history. Uh, but we do recognize that we arrive at new points of critical density. Then we have problems of scale. How do you organize society given these uh, new densities? How do you redistribute um, resources? That's not a problem in hunting and gathering societies. It was not a problem in the earliest subsistence agriculture. But as soon as you got past that, you had this problem of social organization and redistribution. You had problems of social bonding. No problem with social bonding when you have a familistic and a totally enclosed village life. The minute you move past that, how do you relate to people? What are the skills and methods and, and alliance mechanisms uh, in everything from uh, friendships when your friends aren't simply the people in, that you grew up with uh, to, uh, to marriage and the formation of um, uh, special purpose organizations? And of course, the religious societies were the first special purpose organizations. So uh, every community deals with this, new forms of social organization, new ways of social bonding, and new ways to develop human beings. All right, and so those first sibling sisterhoods were dealing with those three things. Uh, by 500 BC, uh, you get uh, the whole phenomenon of the Jainist and the Buddhist. You get these, uh, uh, a whole proliferation of religious orders 
that our communities that are trying to do this are dealing with problems of scale because by then you've got urbanization, uh, uh, already runaway urbanization in 500 BC. Uh, and uh, so uh, all these problems of bondedness, of redistribution of resources that are being badly skewed uh, and uh, held by powerful military elites and so on. Um, uh, but most of these are elitist communities and some of them are esoteric. Uh, the Sibylline Sisterhoods continue, um, <coughs> Pythagorean and so on. Um, then with the, um, uh, the, the uh, Christian era, you get a new kind of community because these early, um, the earliest Christian communities uh, were um, uh, women and men in um, non, uh, they were not esoteric, they were not, uh, there was an initiation rite because there was baptism. Uh, but apart from baptism, uh, the, the, um, the unusual quality of these, these communities were they were for working people, uh, not just for the elite. Uh, and uh, they followed the trade routes. And uh, one of the strengths of early Christianity, I've been tracing it, was women traders. Uh, and you see, in an era when you have women actively involved in international trade, you're drawing on a whole set of bonding capacities uh, and um, uh, 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 spiritual uh, potentialities side by side. Uh, so the very rapid spread of Christianity had to do with the, uh, the role of women traders. Just take my word for it. I, someday I hope to get all this down on paper. Um, and so you had unique sets of sisterhoods and brotherhoods, and women uh, at that time were, uh, they cut their hair and dressed as men, and they traveled. Uh, the apostles, uh, uh, women like Thecla, you see very dynamic people of, uh, of deep, of powerful spiritual um, awareness, a gift of teaching, uh, and of creating uh, communities going from one place to another, helping set up new Christian communities. You had many women like that working side by side with men. And so you, on the one hand, you had the, uh, the apostles, the women and men apostles. On the other hand, you had the traders who were the friends of the apostles and threw open their houses in all the towns where they had uh, uh, trading centers and so on. So you, you had a, a very interesting interaction there uh, uh, that uh, drew in the scholars of the time. So you had this kind of cross-cutting, intersecting of the scholarly and scientific community of uh, uh, like 100 AD, which was an interesting one, and of the trade uh, community and of the religious community. And the explosion was a function of the interaction of the three and of the uh, important role of women in all three of them. Um, uh, the great women scientists also of that era. Now, um, when I say scientist, uh, you understand it has a different meaning at that time, but people who were making uh, contributions of that order. Uh, now, when we get into um, uh, the, um, uh, the 1200s, Again, you have a new set of social densities. You had a fantastic population explosion, and so you have this need to find new ways of bonding, uh, new ways of redistributing the resources. Uh, uh, I'm speaking especially of Europe now. It's too complicated to talk about the whole world. Uh, but um, anyway, there were specific problems of scale that communities were dealing with. And you had almost every kind of community that's been founded in the last hundred years was also founded in 1200, I mean in the 12 and 1300s. Fantastic proliferation of every conceivable kind. In a minute, I'm going to move to the 20th century, and I'll say that everything I'm talking about was done before, except one kind. There's one kind of community that did not exist then, as far as I know. Um, so uh, this, um, uh, and in the Middle Ages, again, you see you had women. You had great women religious. Um, uh, you had great teachers who have not found their place in the church as they should, like Julian of Norwich, one of the greatest teachers. Um, actually, she's 1300, but give me a couple of centuries leeway. And um, uh, you have uh, women, 25% of the landed estates of Europe were administered by women in the 1200s. It was a function of the evacuation migrations related to the Crusades and so on. You had women very actively, again, at the heart of the trade network. And this combination of uh, women religious, women in the trade networks, 
and women very active in the guilds, both uh, in the men's and women's guilds and all women's guilds. You had women at the heart of the each major sector of life and forming the, the new urban communes, uh, the, the big, uh, big vinages in, in the uh, uh, cities of, uh, of Europe. So again, you had all these things interrelating and intersecting, and so you had a terrific capability. And we almost entered the post-bureaucratic age in the 1300s, uh, Joachim de Fiori's age of the whole Holy Spirit, when the dismantling of all bureaucratic structures, but we didn't make it, uh, and we slid back. Well, uh, we have, um, there are many parallels you can draw, and I'm sure they have been drawn uh, for all of you, uh, between uh, that period and our own. But you see, the one thing we don't have now, as I pointed out before, is this involvement of women. We don't have women in the trade networks of the world, and we have very few uh, women religious of a stature that uh, we can really draw on as the spiritual resources of the planet. I mean, they're there, but they're not in a position where they are audible and visible. Uh, and uh, so uh, we enter this era where we have many other enabling mechanisms, many other new understandings, uh, uh, and so on, uh, crippled in that respect and also crippled in the sense that most of our social innovations still derive pretty much from the 12 and 1300s. I don't, I think Francis, uh, figured out uh, a lot of the things to do with large-scale population uh, and uh, redistribution uh, that we have not particularly improved on. And localism, uh, decentralism, uh, the decentralist theory of today isn't that much. It's some advance, but not that much advance. So we still have a lot of, um, of work to do. But um, uh, given that we are so handicapped, uh, and uh, that we aren't as far along as, uh, I don't think we're as far along as we sometimes say we are, uh, uh, then what have we, in fact, been creating in the way of communities that will create new forms of organization suitable for uh, a transition to a future uh, planetary society and to create the kind of people who can function in it? Formation uh, social organization and formation, those two, uh, and uh, bonding people uh, who otherwise would have difficulty finding places in the social organization. Um, I find that almost every type of community uh, that we have uh, today uh, exists on a continuum of a residential at one end, uh, uh, like uh, Lindisfarne, in a way, is a residential community. You have a core here. Uh, uh, and then at the other end are all the people who uh, like to come to Lindisfarne uh, and um, all the other uh, associations that are supportive of communities. So, the, so for, for each type of community, you have a residential core, and then you have over there the, the various voluntary associations that support it and act on behalf of it and then people moving back and forth. So you have a fluidity. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the residential commitment is, uh, uses the oldest model we have of human bonding, which is the family, uh, and uh, derives its strength from fam familistic commitments. Uh, and uh, the people um, uh, who support that and move in and out of it um, are uh, providing that other ingredient, which the human being has had as a part of his life in our entire history on the planet, which is fluidity, migration, and movement. And uh, so one thing we have done very well in the 20th century is to find ways to have centers of where we know where they are and we know how to find them and we know how to move uh, in and out of them. Uh, what we have trouble with is defining ourselves as we move in and out of them. Sometimes we're insecure about how central we are, how much we belong, what our identity is, and I think our challenge uh, lies precisely uh, in this fluidity, and that, as I understand it, uh, is uh, what this new community um, that David is working with in California is trying to do, the troubadour principle. Uh, the uh, contemplatives and the apostolics uh, are today, I think, are um, uh, very much at the forefront of um, the creation of, um, uh, of this uh, understanding of new, uh, both 
new modes of living. The troubadour principle, interestingly enough, is the one that's being considered by uh, all the women apostolic orders that I'm familiar with. And they are organizing themselves into small, fluid groups that can move around. And sometimes they call themselves troubadour groups. Uh, and, uh, and yet they have um, uh, a, a commitment uh, to a very deeply centered prayer life. And they are at one and the same time, and this is fantastic, uh, studying new methods of spiritual formation and studying new methods of moving about in community. They're doing precisely the thing which we're talking about, either, either or, you know, the pull and so on. And they're doing it, they're growing on both fronts at once. Um, I just uh, was with the uh, school sisters of St. Francis for their centennial celebration. They held a chapter of Mass, which was the St. Uh, Francis called together all the brothers of the order. 5,000 brothers all came uh, to... Um, uh, this uh, valley with their mats under their arms, which is why it's called the chapter of that. Uh, and they were doing the same. And this is precisely what they're doing. New concepts of spiritual formation and new, uh, new concepts of um, a fluid a community, and yet one which has this kind of uh, coherence and is very much committed to uh, uh, organize empowerment of local community. That's, uh, that's uh, what uh, uh, this, uh, this order and many other orders, each order that I talk to, they seem to have the same thing, of local empowerment. They're, they're helping people figure out how to use what they've got in their local community, not deal with bureaucratic structures of the church or uh, of uh, government. And uh, so uh, there, there's an enormous resource there which goes far beyond anything that, uh, that we're aware of. Um, and so they're helping build new localist-type infrastructures, you might say. Now, the, uh, the contemplatives, uh, at the same time that the apostolics are uh, studying spiritual formation, the contemplatives are taking the action dimension of where, where prayer reaches to. Uh, I guess Brother David is one of the best examples I know of the contemplative relating to the world of action, so I don't need to say anything, um, I don't need to say anything more about that. Um, uh, religious utopias are something else again, uh, in that they're not uh, the people who enter them are not taking religious orders in the same sense. The nature of their vows are uh, a much more secular vowing. Uh, but um, uh, the, um, uh, the Bruderhof principle is still a very powerful principle. Uh, and uh, uh, there are still communities um, not as, uh, as visible and well-known as the Bruderhof in forming uh, that are patterning themselves on uh, what essentially is an older model, an older authoritarian model, but are still uh, meeting, uh, profoundly meeting human needs. Uh, and uh, they are getting more into um, this um, uh, building of local, uh, 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 into the concept of local empowerment, which was not terms they used to think in. Uh, the, the, the uh, complex of communities that Lindisfarne uh, represents and that the uh, community in Scotland and the, the new consciousness communities um, represent uh, take um, uh, formation uh, as almost the human formation, the formation of the new person, as almost the central point. Uh, and one of the things that I'm the most interested in is seeing how there can be more interaction between those and the political communities, like the whole movement for a new society, uh, where you have people coming together out of the same depths of commitment to the new world. Uh, people who enter the movement for a new society, uh, just as people entering religious orders, uh, you know, leave behind private property. And um, uh, they uh, take a vow of poverty, <laughs> Uh, in effect, uh, and um, uh, their vow of obedience is an interesting one because it's obedience to um, uh, the uh, to the political needs of society, which is a rather different concept of obedience uh, than uh, the one we have usually thought of. And so they're committing themselves. Uh, with their, their total life in, a, you know, in an almost monastic way, except that um, their uh, celibacy is not particularly uh, 
uh, a, a point <laughs> in these communities, but apart from the, uh, uh, the celibacy thing, or the uh, poverty and obedience, uh, committing themselves uh, to uh, a totally new discovery of the political uh, potentialities of the 20th century. And uh, the places where I've seen them at work, um, uh, a little bit in Denver, some in Philadelphia, and now there's a new one started up in uh, the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Um, they are reading maps, well, they're creating new kinds of maps of the social terrain. They come into a community and they create a map that no, uh, put things on a map that nobody knew was there. Where are the resources? Where are people who can help each other? And then they teach the community and, while they themselves are learning what these resources are, and they help them to become, what's the old self-sufficiency thing, of course. Uh, but it has a new meaning because it's done with a very heightened political consciousness and uh, a sense of a knowledge of what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in Asia, active communication, um, uh, a full use of the mechanism of travel and uh, the uh, uh, you know telephone, telegraph, and uh, and radio, and so on. Uh, so there really is a creation of new political infrastructure on the planet, which has network capabilities. And uh, at one end, you have people like Tony Judge sitting in Brussels designing a computer information system that you and I can use uh, to communicate with whoever we want to anywhere. Uh, now, you know, this is localism using the most highly developed technology. And then you get the, inter, uh, the Plato system, sort of intermediaries. Uh, any of you who know about the Plato system can go to your nearest university that has one and stick in information and tell, uh, you know, let your friends know that uh, you've put something into Plato. Uh, not everybody can have access to it and has some relation to the military, but a lot of other uh, people get into Plato. Uh, we're trying to civilianize Plato. Uh, so um, uh, this is, uh, you know, there are all kinds of possibilities there, and this is what the uh, political communities do. But they, it's a, these are family, familistic communities with a, a very intimate um, daily life and a responsibility for formation. They're raising children. Uh, they're all ages. Uh, but they all worry about their lack of time for inner growth. And, uh, uh, you know, if you could just perform an operation and link together a Lindisfarne and a Life Center <laughs> in Philadelphia with Movement for a New Society, you see, then you would be relating all these uh, very skilled political infrastructure things with these uh, uh, very uh, 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 new and insightful understandings about, uh, about inner growth. Uh, and, you know, that's, it's a challenge. I think it's uh, one of the things we really have to uh, relate to. Uh, very quickly, so I must uh, finish here now. Uh, the, the Newtown movement should not be ignored in, as we think about communities because a lot of people are putting uh, their energies into um, Newtowns, and they do represent an interesting intermediate level. Uh, having participated in the formation of a Newtown for which we lost our land, uh, in Colorado, uh, I'm intimately aware of uh, the possibilities for sticking in um, a whole new political conception of local uh, development and of bringing together at the very start people of all kinds of different socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds, because that's what we were trying to do, and um, uh, to bring, uh, to, to create and design, this is more what you're going to hear this evening, uh, spaces uh, for uh, the formation of the spirit as well as uh, to amplify people's uh, social skills uh, and um, the possibilities of keeping a spiritual dimension in. But the kind of alliance you get when you're building a new town is fantastic. You've got everybody there from soup to nuts. You've got your local business magnates and your bankers and you have people from the churches and you get your your commune and counterculture people in if you are skillful in making your contacts. Uh, and you get all the ethnic minorities in, and um, it gives uh, women a very fine opportunity uh, to uh, do a lot of community design work uh, to the extent that they get involved in this. Uh, so uh, the communities that have actually developed um, all fall so far short 
of this kind of vision of a new kind of a, a system of alliances in a contemporary society that is tragic. But the, um, uh, the possibilities are still there. When I visited Tapiola in Finland and I saw these huge expanses of space, people isolated. I mean, talk about the isolation of the nuclear family. Uh, it's just horrible. And yet it was designed to be uh, a community, a fostering, nurturing community uh, for families. Well, anyway, that's, uh, that's another challenge. And it's uh, at the problem of scale issue, you see, it's working at a slightly different level than the, the smaller communities, but a very, very important one. Um, the one kind of uh, community that they didn't have in um, the 1200s, uh, there were counterparts, so lots of new towns in the Middle Ages, um, was the, um, the gay, uh, the liberation communes. That is, it would be all women or all men, gay, lesbian, or all black, or uh, whatever. This particular phenomenon is new to our time, and I think it's a transition uh, phenomenon, but it is a very significant mobilization of human potentials uh, that cross-cuts the religious and the political uh, in, in a very interesting kind of way. And I, I, don't, uh, I don't know how to put that into the broader picture except to say that it's a transition type of, of community, but it's a very, very important one. Uh, for every one of the things I've talked about, there have been uh, counterparts, um, sort of network counterparts, people who work not in living in the community but work at the network that links the communities. And so networking is uh, uh, where it's at for the 20th century. I'm sure everybody here is a walking network. Um, so how we um, uh, take advantage of our networking capacities and um, our new understandings of, um, of the possibilities of fluidity and, and relating to um, centers. Uh, and find enough time to keep the connectedness and the networking and still work on that problem of formation. Uh, I really, I came here because I see this as the, the place that everything keeps eluding us. See, we get everything else set up as sociologists and looking at social structures. I, I see all the, we set up all these potentials and then we lose the whole thing because we haven't dealt adequately with formation, but formation cannot be uh, uh, separated, uh, obviously, from this uh, problem of social structure. And I think in the formation process that a linking of uh, a continued training in sharp analytic work, one of the, you know, uh, to get fuzzy-minded because you feel spiritual, I think is one of the greatest dangers, and I'm sure. And uh, touchy-feely uh, uh, spirituality is another very great danger. Uh, well, that's enough said about that. But um, <laughs> um, the, uh, I've, I think I've uh, begun to understand a way of linking the uh, training of the intuitive capacity with the training of the analytic capacity that I'm hoping to do some more exploring with. Uh, in the teaching situation. I'll just tell you that and then stop. Uh, it has to do with taking any phenomenon, and I started this uh, teaching about ecosystems, and uh, having students uh, conceptualize, choose one ecosystem. Uh, oh, they chose things like the room they lived in on the campus, uh, or um, the state legislature, or the YWCA in town. I mean, you all understand what ecosystems are. Uh, and um, uh, then they had to conceptualize that in a series of different modes. Uh, first, they did it verbal analytic, which is our entire education is linked to verbal analytic conceptualizations. So our examinations are couched in those terms, uh, at least in the uh, humanistic and social sciences they are. Uh, so everybody has to reduce everything there is in reality in, through their entire school career to verbal analytic. Uh, then... Um, after the verbal analytic, uh, they were asked to transform it into metaphor, the same echo uh, system in a metaphor. Uh, third assignment, turn it into color. Fourth assignment, turn it into music. Fifth assignment, turn it into a mathematical equation. Uh, the person in my class who had chosen her family as her echo system 
had a, a real uh, aha experience when she turned her family into a mathematical equation. By the time we had finished going through the uh, poetry, um, by the time each person had rendered their, their ecosystem into or conceptualized their ecosystem in each of these different modes, all kinds of perceptions had been generated and understandings of the multidimensionality of phenomena, which I could have lectured about while I was blue in the face, and they would not have understood in that way. Well, now, in community, if we can get that equivalent of um, uh, in, in, our, um, uh, in our intellect, you see, we, we do it, um, uh, well, there, there's a kind of div a division out into when you're sort of doing music and dance and yoga and so on, and then uh, and then when you're uh, uh, doing the inward. And um, uh, so, although it's very, it's closer, I think it comes closer to places like Lindisfarne than anywhere else to making this a whole. Uh, that is, I think, would be a fantastic contribution to make this a part of the formation process for children growing up so that they don't go through this just destroying process of rendering everything into the verbal analytic mode. Uh, and um, also to, um, to teach um, the skills of, um, uh, of familism along with this linking of the intuitive and the analytic. And uh, I was fascinated to discover that these constructed extended families that many uh, uh, church parishes are developing now, you know, 20 people sign up and they're put together in a family and then they spend uh, a week, uh, a day together every week or something. They don't work unless they have a nuclear family or two in them. That people who, uh, uh, that a group of 20 people that don't introduce a couple of people with all the disciplines of a family, a sustained family relationship, they can't uh, cont continue the bonding. They simply break apart before the year, and they're supposed to last a year. So there, there are certain kinds of, of mutual accommodation, mutual self-discipline, uh, and so on, that people learn in families, which we shouldn't despise. You know, we say a lot about how the family's breaking up and so on, but it's a, it's, it's a um, empirical fact that certain kinds of skills develop in nuclear families that very much need to be uh, introduced into community. So the linking of the intellectual analytic and uh, the, um, the spiritual intuitive through one set of devices and the, uh, the introduction of uh, the skills of familistic bonding uh, in a context of um, being full of the love of God uh, and glorifying his creation and being a part of its evolution. Uh, it's possible in our century. It may not be probable, but it's possible. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.